Welcome to the Spotlight series presented by Surviving Society. In these episodes, Chantel and Tiso take a step back and hand over hosting to academics, activists and grassroots community organisations. These are a range of episodes positioned locally and globally to tell the stories that need to be heard. Enjoy. Good evening, good afternoon, good day. I'm Edward in the studio and I am the executive producer of the Spotlight. Here are some of my favourite clips. I guess before this kill the bill moment, there was often a lot of competition, blacks versus Asians, women versus men, Jews versus Muslims. And I feel that this really is a moment for us to break through, I guess what is quite a capitalistic impulse to compete with each other for crumbs, as opposed to kind of visioning what a future of plenty might look like. Do you know what I mean? Scarcity. Yeah. I think that the experience in the last years and the experience that is now really unavoidable to face it now, it has taught people a lot. And I think people are regrouping and working out how to do it and what to do next. I don't think that, you know, once they've had floods in Germany and Holland and Belgium, and China, you know, and in other countries, and in the north of England, um, that, you know, we are on the verge of catastrophe, and people are really terrified. I certainly am. I believe that they don't, they are pathologically greedy. That is a definition of capitalism which works very well. Mm. It does absolutely describe their attitude to the the environment right now. They have fires that are burning down their mansions on the west of the United States and they still cannot get it together to cut down on the emissions to reorganize society, to, um, to give other people work. They need work. There's plenty of work to be done to save the world, to save the environment, to change the poisoning of the soil, to save the animals, to really recreate the world as it needs to be recreated and cared for by women, by men, by every gender. They can't do it. We have to do it for them. Our movement has to be built to do that. And one of the first things that has to happen is that we have to work on the assumption that we are one movement internationally and support each other in the struggle. I don't mean send that empty solidarity. It doesn't change a lot. It's nice to have solidarity, but it really doesn't pay the rent, if you know what I mean. Mm. And I think we need to organize on an international level, which is why we have done the work supporting the strike in India. Millions of people are on strike. Women are often leading you know, the initiatives of the strike. They're farm workers, farmers, all kinds of people using the opportunity also of the strike, garment workers, sweatshop workers, etc. Millions of people are involved. We don't hear a lot about it, but what they are doing is fighting against the takeover of all land by the multinationals, which means they will have the power 
they will have our food sovereignty in their hands. We don't want that. We don't want them in charge of our soil. We don't want them in charge of our medicines. We don't want them in charge of our lives. Our students are very engaged, very active, and, and there are many ways for them to engage. And their engagement is, you know, you know, there's a spectrum of engagement, I think, from the typical sort of American model of civic engagement and volunteering, but also to working, you know, a lot on student elections and taking part in different movements across the country. So, yes, I think, you know, historically, a lot of their thesis have been around. So, I, you know, I, I teach in public administration as a discipline. So a lot of their thesis has been on corruption, uh, reforms, the challenges to reform mm. uh, and things like that. But I think in this moment, it's we've been through so much. I think it's too soon for me to tell you, like, you know, how that's going to impact their research. I feel like we're all still reeling. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of long silence in, in the class. We sit, we listen. I, I don't, I, can, I couldn't tell you, you know, as of now, like this semester, how it'll affect their research agenda. But I'm trying and many of us are trying to, to get them to think about their victimhood differently, right? And yeah. use their, you know, papers and, and, you know, assignments to think about, you know, real life problems. And mm. they do. I mean, I teach a course on, on gender and politics and we're in the midst of a crisis. They do. I don't know if they'll be able to produce research. It's uh, it's getting very expensive to live in Beirut and very difficult. So let's see. Yeah, I mean, again, for people who don't know, do you want to give us a sense of exactly how insanely expensive it is and what it means to survive in an economy that's basically imploding? Yeah, so I mean, I'm not good with economics, but I can tell you like my, my salary is worth you know, eight times less it was worth last year, right? So the dollar was 1,500. The dollar today in the black market is 9,500. Uh, that means that, that there's about like 50% or more, Esco says, more people living under poverty line, staggering unemployment. Of course, no financial incentive, no response mm -hmm. from the government. And people lost all of their savings. So the university, actually AUB, had to lay off like 900 people, which were not proud of we're not happy of but it's it's you know such as is most institutions in the country i mean yesterday i had a friend of mine and he owns gyms and he, he called crying he said we i'm sorry we haven't been talking i said no problem he said we had to shut down you know all our businesses so it's been uh, it's been very heavy and that of course affects the quality of research at a research institution right affects you know students motivation to do research research is expensive you need to fund it you need to have the time and space as i was telling you like when i first became an, a visiting assistant, assistant professor i was like this is great you know i'm going to get paid to produce theory and to sit and think about this right and 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 now it's it's about survival, budget cuts and larger classrooms and, and, you know, running and writing grants. So let's see. I, I don't know. I mean, I was I've, precisely I've written more, like I've written more angry tweets and grants in the last three months than ever in my life. <laughs> I'm not writing anything of, of substance, right? I mean, well, arguably. <laughs> Various comments made from within critical indigenous literature that we need to be very careful about the difference between race and indigeneity, for example. And I think the problem is just because indigenous people have been racialized doesn't mean that you can reduce indigenous people to a race, which obviously Absolutely. then, you know, raises very important questions about, well, what is race anyway? And here, mm. at least for my purposes, and I know for yours, we're talking about race as a technology of power, a technology of power for the, for the colonial management of human differences is the way that I tend to put it. Uh, rather than something that actually is, uh, you know, a description of one's identity. So we spoke about, you know, who you are, where you're situated in 
this country that's now called Australia, where your land is, etc. And that's your identity. That's not, and that's got nothing to do with with race, which again, you know, speaks to this question of the relationship between race and phenotype, which is a completely arbitrary and artificial Mm -hmm. construction, which I think, again, is really important to make clear um, for an international audience where it seems to be that race is much more aligned with skin color and so on than it is in Australia, which which shows just the way in which race, as you know, Patrick Wolf, for example, says, is constantly being invented and reinvented because it's so unstable as a concept that it unstable as a concept that it constantly needs to be packed with more and more content, and that it can shape shift in various ways in order to make itself to adapt itself to the context in which mm-hmm. it's operating, which is constantly under transformation. Is crisis, you know, helping to explain different experiences across the continent, but also myself and Pakistan, I remember, That's across true. the African continent. And that week long was thinking, is crisis useful? Yes, it's useful as a category of analysis. Right now, it's not useful for us in Beirut because it's been too much of it, right? Mm-hmm. So the Syrian refugee crisis started in 2011. It's been 10 years. Like, this is a protracted situation of misery and inequality. And the education crisis, it's not the right word to describe it because it's been 30 years of deliberative policies by the government to underfund public universities, to crush freedoms across public schools. Crush. We don't have a history book because they can't agree on the history of Lebanon. Mm. So our history books stop in 1943, independence, because politicians consider different battles differently. We don't have a narrative. So you can imagine that coupled with very expensive infrastructure and living conditions. We pay two electricity bills and only the lucky ones have internet. So Khadr Beirut is actually work with selected schools, uh, 15 of them. And this work is read by Dr. Rima Akkari with the community and graduate students from eight universities to support turning select schools in the devastated areas into community centers. So it's not about, you know, fundraising and donating, you know, for laptops, which, which we're doing, but it's also about coming together with the parents and the teachers and the students and, and, and the university students and opening up AUB to the community and bringing the community into AUB so we can turn, you know, maybe just one school into a model community school, right? Mm-hmm. That supports in rehabilitation, that supports in mental health, that supports the revival of the streets, that talks you know, a language of community and inclusion. So it's a disaster. It's really interesting to think about the impact that 9-11 had on me, uh, because I think what has a much more significant impact on me, and I know it's linked to our wider conversation here, are the riots or the uprisings that took place in Northern England back in 2001, which is, of course, just a few months before the attacks on the Twin Towers in New York. And um, they had a much more profound impact on me personally, but they were also very much linked to the fallout of the 9-11 attacks. I mean, so I know that many of the listeners would be familiar with what happened, which is where due to far-right provocation, a number of Asian communities uh, fought pitch battles with police in towns including Oldham, Burnley and Bradford. And it's well established now that the Asian offenders, um, the Asian participants uh, in these uprisings um, were dealt with much more harshly than the far-right agitators. Um, They were given much longer sentences and had a much more profound impact on social policy particularly as it came to those concepts that developed, such as integration and community cohesion, you know, which have been shoved down the throats of British Asian communities and particularly British Muslim communities over the past 20 years. And, as, and I talk about the impact that's had because it's been so significant in that 
I was actually in sixth form in Oldham at the time. I was studying my A-levels there. And I remember one week of the riots, there were about six police vans outside the sixth form every single day, even though there was nothing happening at the college. And I also had a part-time job at the time, which was nearby. I worked with a number of young Asian men, a few of them were convicted and sent to prison for over five years. And, you know, so that was a profound impact on me where I could see how local events had led to a number of lives being ruined. And, you know, in these cases, people were given, you know, these were not even unique cases. People were given five-year sentences just for throwing stones or rocks. This has had a huge impact in terms of, um, as I mentioned earlier, about this kind of development from Asian to Muslim uh, in the UK in how these communities were seen. And it was almost a perfect storm in terms of the development of a new strain of Islamophobia. And of course, Naj, you're absolutely right. Islamophobia goes far back, uh, much earlier than 9-11, you know, much earlier than the 1990s. You know, there's a long history of Islamophobia in the UK and in Western Europe and beyond. But I think that 2001 was such a seismic moment. And I think that these kind of twin events um, of not only the 9-11 attacks, but also the Northern uprisings uh, do really highlight how it's led to a number of policy developments, you know, which have been furthered uh, by the Conservatives, but also were championed initially by New Labour, um, which have really been used as a stick to beat Muslim communities with. Now, that's something that we, that we should really have a focus on in looking back over the last 20 years. I'm an activist turned scholar and not the other way around. I've been an activist for many, many years. And then I went and did a PhD as sort of trying to broaden my understanding, connect with different contexts. So yes, there is a deep commitment, I think. Um, and I don't know which one trumps the other. I don't know if activism is before scholar or scholar is before activism, but they're mixed together. And uh, yeah, thank you for saying that, you know, what I'm doing helps you understand better what's happening. We have had a horrible year. Uh, that turned hellish with the explosion. So I feel it's our obligation to be speaking out on the multiplicity of the crisis, the intersectionality of the crisis uh, as survivors by coincidence mm. of the explosion. All of us feel that we survived by coincidence. So what can we do next that's better, faster, more transdisciplinary to at least if we cannot fix, limit some of the mental and emotional damage on all of us. Okay, so for maybe audiences who aren't um, so aware of what's been happening since uh, since last year, I mean, obviously there are much longer embedded histories, but particularly made more acute with the pandemic and then the explosion. Do you, do you want to just say a little bit about that, but also maybe connect it to how that's maybe uh, implicated your research at the moment or your thinking and your pedagogy? Uh, yes, uh, so Lebanon has a sectarian power sharing system, which means that a group of people who are mainly men brokered a deal many, many years ago that their way to stay in power is to make sure that the system is sectarian, that they are aligned with religious courts, with the banks and with people who have weapons. Uh, we had a 17-year civil war that couldn't change the formula, the basic formula that the only way to govern is through power sharing and sectarian order. After the war ended in 1990, those men, you know, washed their hands from blood and made a deal that they will continue in the same manner of sectarian power sharing, basically dividing the spoils of the state among themselves. This didn't change for 30 years. In October 2019, people took to the streets 
it was a moment where all of us came together, like you said, Srila, that it was feminist groups, marginalized groups, you know, university professors, student mothers. Mm -hmm. It was sort of an intersectional moment where it had been bottling up for so many years. Little did we know, although I should have expected it because I work on power sharing politics, uh, I should have expected that they would crush us with severe oppression. But I couldn't expect, and I don't think anybody expected that aside of police violence, increased censorship, that we would actually also lose our, all our money in the banks. My dad worked for 48 years and the bank took away his dollars. Lebanon defaulted, our foreign reserves are out, our currency has inflated by 500%. All of this was in parallel with the pandemic hitting Lebanon and because of the neoliberal model of hospitals and healthcare, it meant that we didn't have enough ventilators and hospital beds back in March. So you can imagine how bad it is today. Then came the explosion of the century with tons of explosives. I don't know what they are. There's mixed reviews about what they are. Uh, immediately killed 200 people and then not so immediately. Just last week, Dima Qaisi died in a coma after being in her injuries for 83 days. We're still burying our dead, but the power sharing system prevails. It's still the same men who hate each other publicly, but need each other to stay in power, who are making deals, uh, appointing uh, uh, officials, uh, meeting each other, congratulating each other. There's not been a single arrest. We don't know until now, even the nature and the implications of the explosion. So how it affected my research, I, I was not the same person after August 4th. I could not go back to the classroom. I could not even go see my family. What was I to say to them? I mean, I could not, so I screamed and I cried for many, many days. And then we came together as a community, you know, two days later and said, we have to do something. So I don't know if it's my research or my activism, but we created Khaddit Beirut. It's called the Shake Up. And mm -hmm. we are about a hundred scholars here, but also worldwide uh, from different disciplines, ranks, age groups, backgrounds, expertise with athletes and business owners and artists that are saying we need to create an inclusive roadmap for recovery because these corrupt, inept, negligent, arrogant warlords are not going to do anything to fix it. We have to try to fix it and build it ourselves. We were also told by many experts around the world and scholars that the nature, the extent, the timing of this bombing is very unique. There's not been mm. a bombing at a time of a pandemic. There's not been a bombing that wasn't coupled you know, with accountability. There's not been a pandemic amidst financial collapse. There's not been a pandemic with only a caretaker government because they can't figure out who to appoint. So we had to build this roadmap ourselves. We came together from nursing, mental health, chemistry, science, environmental health, political science, sociology, education, and so we have to do something. And particularly in the Australian context where we are on unceded lands, our lands are unceded, they are stolen. That's never brought up as a conversation or recognition, even by non-Indigenous people of colour that live here in Australia. There's always conversation about how race and racism works in Australia and what's happening, but nobody grounds that in the context of you know, Australia being an unceded country that's and, and Aboriginal people being dispossessed of their lands mm. and that, that's never up for grabs. And when we have people that come in from places in America and other locations that don't have that understanding, the discussions always end up about, you know, racism being about phenotype and, you know, a black, white binary where that's not the way race and racism works in the Australian context. 
but we have to know that they are also workers in struggle and we have to find ways of working with them which do not impose their domination. The same thing is true on race. White people have a power over black people a lot of the time and advantages that belong to all of them. I don't believe in privileges. You know, being able to vote is not a privilege, it's a right. It's a right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so we just clear that up. But, but advantages is a real thing. But we need white people who are in struggle against the same people who are attacking us and whom we want to overthrow and undermine. And therefore, we make our case against the men who would dominate us, and we demand money so that they do not have the power to dominate us. We demand the wage that belongs to us, whatever is our race, for example. And at the same time, we see what they are doing which is useful to us and we don't turn our back on it to turn our back on the struggle of others who are struggling not with you but in a way that is useful to you that is separatism that is being you know being pure for no reason but defeat and the woman who said you know, she was a black woman who said, you know, I don't want only women who look people who look like me. I want them to think like me and act like me. In other words, I do not turn down workers, other workers who have more power than I have. I do not turn them down in the struggle that they are making. I want to use what they are doing for my own liberation. And for that, I must be supportive of what they are doing. I must work out how to use their power for my purpose. We use the term mob as a term about who we are as a family group or a collective group of people. So our mob is in my context, and the way I use the word is about my family. And my surname is Bargali. I identify myself as Kamilaroi and Wanarua woman. That means Kamilaroi and Wanarua are the nations that I come from in Aboriginal nations I come from in Northwest New South Wales. My surname, Bargali, is actually um, derived from the name Bag Ali. So my great-grandfather and his brothers, they came from Punjab in the late 1800s to work with family members who were Kamaliers and hawkers in the north of New South Wales at that time. There was very little dark-skinned people that um, were in Australia at that time other than Aboriginal peoples. White women obviously didn't mix then at those stages with, you know, Aboriginal men nor men of colour from other countries. And uh, my great-grandfather and his two brothers, the three of them married Aboriginal women. That's the story that I actually call our Punjabi dreaming, the story mm. of us Bargali mob. I think like the case of Shamima Begum highlighted, you know, I know that it's frequently in the media um, over the past few years, you know, since the revelations uh, were first made uh, around how she travelled to Syria with some school friends. And I think that it's 
so instructive as to how embedded Islamophobia is in the UK. At some point in the coverage of Shamima Begum, I remember there was a report of a shooting club in the UK. I think it was somewhere in Merseyside where there was a shooting club where they were using Shamima Begum's face as a target. So there's this kind of deeply embedded hate uh, towards Muslim women, which of course was directed at Shimima Begum, but which I think says something much more broadly about how Islamophobia um, is only ever just beneath the surface in the UK, if not in its most explicit form, uh, it's only ever beneath the surface. And um, I think it doesn't take much for many people, you know, to find that Islamophobia within them, you know, which is unfortunate, but which I think is one of the hallmarks of 20 years of the war on terror. And I know that we could have a discussion as many have, um, you know, about the role that Shimima Begum has played, particularly for liberals, you know, who have found it really difficult to find any defense at all. Um, you know, given that she was a child, given that she was groomed, um, but for many liberal commentators in particular, um, they found it impossible, you know, to say any word, you know, for the fear of being seen as an apologist for terrorism or an apologist for anything else. And I think, um, you know, that there have been few but quite strong and persuasive voices who have been saying that Shimima Begum, you know, should face due process, uh, you know, that she was a victim, that she was groomed. Uh, and I think on that topic of grooming, it's also really important to kind of speak about another area, um, you know, which has really kind of highlighted or placed British Muslims and British Pakistanis in particular um, at the centre of a lot of reporting in the UK over the past decade, which has been the racialization of the grooming gang scandals. Um, so again, I know that many listeners will be familiar with this, but it's uh, it's the reporting of how a number of very serious sexual abuse crimes that were committed uh, by groups of men. And of course, some of these cases are still being investigated and still being prosecuted today as we speak. Um, but it's the way in which these crimes have been depicted in the press, have been reported in the press. And it's about the backlash um, that they have had um, on British Muslims and I think on minority communities more generally. Um, so the idea here is, particularly from the right and the far right, um, is that there is something inherently uh, sexually sadistic about Muslim communities, inherently, inherently misogynistic about Muslim communities, and that this is the reason why the crimes occurred, right? So there's this kind of desire to locate deviance within Muslim men as an inherent feature of their being, right? You know, which is linked to their culture, their upbringing, their background, but also their faith. You know, there have been many incidents, uh, you know, of what I would describe to be far-right media coverage of these cases, which I think um, has actually done absolutely nothing for the victims, for the survivors, um, or to prevent future violence against women, but it's done a lot in terms of worsening race relations in terms of making Muslim communities, particularly in some of these places where these crimes have occurred, more vulnerable to racist attacks. It's a really controversial space for a lot of people, you know, for very obvious reasons. But then I also think that in the last couple of years that there has been a real sea change, given that we now have some evidence, you know, which I, which I have contributed to as an academic, along with other scholars, including Ella Cockburn, 
which has really shown how there's absolutely no evidence uh, that one ethnic group is overrepresented as an offending group in crimes of sexual abuse. That, that doesn't mean that we don't make sure that we, re that we redouble our efforts um, in terms of preventing sexual abuse uh, and child sexual abuse in particular. But yeah, I think it's been a real and significant issue in terms of how we've dealt with the racialization of those crimes. And I say we from the perspective of activists, from the perspective of anti-racist and leftist, because I think it has been a dilemma for many. There's no burnout here. We have too much work to take time out to burn up. We, we are busy. <laughs> we have a lot of people who are ready to be active, young people and to ready to be active and to fit into and to extend to their friends what it is they're doing and clarifying their own minds and getting into touch what well, you know it's wonderful when there's a teenager in Turkey who relates to us regularly she you know there there's all kinds of connections that we have with various countries we we were connected with the woman in Peru the Peruvian domestic worker who just got the election of a working class man to be head of government when the right wing, corrupt right wing, wanted to steal the election. They just won and we had a lovely meeting with her in celebration. Now we're going to get down to work. No celebration. We've got to find out what should be doing next and where the domestic workers may be going. Yeah, I just saw a headline in The Guardian yesterday about how what the West is going to do about terrorist attacks that might be planned in Afghanistan. And I just wanted to scream because this, this is, that was the entire rationale for what they did 20 years ago. And yet they are right back where they started having accumulated all of this kind of 20 years worth of kind of violence directed at, um, directed at people who are not in a largely not in a position to resist and I, and all these conversations again around the Taliban and women and children and I think at, at that kind of more political formal institutional political level uh, but also I think some of the wider public understanding it's so poor to me it beggars belief that you can just have the same conversations over and over again which is a kind of I guess a, a bit more of a uh, a sobering note like to finish on I guess this has been a really great conversation and I, I know we could continue it for longer there's lots of things we haven't managed to cover I wanted to talk about as well but I think I think we're ending on as you say a, a sobering note Nadia uh, given where we are at with the situation in Afghanistan now but equally maybe as we've all uh, agreed you know in terms of uh, activism and you know what we should be focusing on going forward I think maybe we we, we are we have we are in a better position to do that. So, uh, yeah, thank you, Wakas, Nadia, and uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you for listening to the Spotlight series. If you're interested in hosting an episode, get in touch.